on tonight's KRBD Evening Report. The orca that was stranded yesterday on Prince of Wales Island has a name. We'll tell you more about it. Plus, a look at the future of Ketchikan International Airport. All that and more coming up. First, let's take a look at the weather. Mostly clear tonight with patchy fog and a slight chance of thunderstorms with lows in the mid-50s and light winds. On Saturday, mostly sunny with patchy fog and a slight chance of thunderstorms, highs around 70 and light winds. On Saturday night, mostly cloudy with lows in the mid-50s and light winds. On Sunday, mostly sunny with highs around 70 and light winds. And mostly clear Sunday night with lows in the mid-50s. It's the KRBD Evening Report. I'm Eric Stone. Researchers have identified the killer whale that beached itself on Prince of Wales Island Thursday and later freed itself. Now the team behind the identification explains why the process of naming and identifying whales is so important. KRBD's Molly Lubers has the story. T-146D. That's the name of the killer whale that was recently live-stranded on Prince of Wales Island. It may not roll off the tongue, but that identifier is significant, says killer whale researcher Jared Towers. It allows us to keep track of the whale after the stranding, and that may be among the most important parts of identifying animals like this. The whale hasn't been spotted since it freed itself on Thursday. Or, at least, no one has seen it and identified it as T-146D again. But Towers says the documentation matters. He works for Canada's Department of Fisheries and Oceans and is also part of a team of researchers called Bay Cytology. He led a team that compiled a photo identification catalog of West Coast transient orcas, also known as Biggs killer whales. There's over 300 of them. They're the ones that are typically seen from Alaska and further south down to the lower 48 off the west coast of North America. The man who identified the beach orca is Tower's colleague, Gary Sutton. Sutton says the eye patch of the whale was fairly distinctive, alerting him that might be T-146D. It's got a big kind of hook on the front and comes in. It it's, sets her apart from a lot of the rest. But to be sure, he says he checked multiple photos of the whale against the catalog. Though he used feminine pronouns to refer to T-146D, he says the gender isn't confirmed. It's mostly a guess based on the shape of the whale. But he says that they do know it's 13 years old. As for whether it will survive in the long term, there are some good signs pointing that direction, says Sutton. I was fairly optimistic because of the way it looked and the fact that there wasn't a significant amount of blood in the tide pool below it and seemed to be in good health. That said, contrary to some posts on social media, NOAA Fisheries says they have not confirmed if the whale has rejoined its pod. But Tower says there's a good track record of this species surviving the live strandings. Before this most recent stranding, he says five individuals from this population had been documented live-stranded over the last 20 years. All of them survived the initial stranding, he says, and four are still alive, as far as they know. They've all rejoined their families after stranding, and they've all gone on to survive and, and live normal, healthy lives. And the only reason we know that is because their identities were documented when they were stranded, and their identities were further documented. Towers says there are several kinds of killer whales along the West Coast, but all the live-stranding events were Biggs killer whales, which he says like to hunt harbor seals in shallow waters. I don't think anyone knows exactly when this whale stranded or what those circumstances were, 
but I would make a wager that there was harbor seal hunting as the motivating factor. Still, there's a lot unknown about T-146D, including exactly why it's stranded. But because it's been identified, there's a good chance that the killer whale could be documented again, and researchers will know if it survived in the long term too. But no update on a snappier name. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Molly Lubers. Ketchikan's local COVID-19 dashboard is back online with a few changes. The relaunch comes as cases surge around the state with 86% of recent Alaska cases linked to the more contagious Delta variant. Ketchikan's COVID-19 dashboard gives up-to-date data on cases, hospitalizations, and the sources of infections. It also shows whether patients are symptomatic, their vaccination status, and the average rate of new cases in the community. Though some of that data had been available on the state's public health dashboard, that information isn't updated as quickly. Some metrics, like the number of active cases, were not reported by state health authorities. State data is also updated less frequently, with new case information added to the dashboard just three days a week. The new local dashboard will be updated each weekday. That's according to a statement from the community's fire chief and emergency manager. Until it shut down on July 23rd, the community's online COVID-19 dashboard was run by Ketchikan's Emergency Operations Center. The new dashboard is run by state nurses at Ketchikan Public Health Center and hosted on the Ketchikan Borough's website. Local officials have emphasized the need to hand over pandemic response duties to state authorities. Some things look a little different. For instance, Ketchikan's locally determined COVID-19 risk level is no longer listed. Prior to the EOC shutdown, local mayors, managers, and other senior officials set the community's pandemic threat level after consulting a variety of health indicators. Businesses and schools looked to that community risk level for advice on capacity restrictions, masking recommendations, and other response measures. State and federal maps provide information on COVID-19 transmission, but those don't take into account things like hospital capacity, whether contact tracing is successful, and other metrics that provided context and helped influence the locally determined risk level. As of Friday, state officials say all regions of Alaska are in high pandemic alert status as determined by the average resident case rate. Given the rising case numbers and the risk of transmission across southeast Alaska, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends that everyone wear a mask indoors. Also absent from the new dashboard is data on the local positivity rate, which shows the percentage of COVID-19 tests in the community that come back positive. But that data is available on a statewide dashboard. The new dashboard is live on the borough's website. It's linked with this story on krbd.org. Voters may weigh in on financing upgrades and reconfiguration of some of Ketchikan's public ball fields. That's if the borough assembly approves putting a $6.7 million bond measure before voters this fall. At its June 21st meeting, the assembly narrowly approved moving forward with a bond proposition. For Norman Walker Field near Schoenbar Middle School, expansion is proposed to meet American Legion and high school requirements with fixed fencing and artificial turf, new grandstands and a wheelchair-accessible route from the grandstands, restrooms, and concessions are also planned. Upgrades to Drency Dudley Field near Ketchikan High School include expanding the upper field to make it a softball-compliant field with fixed fencing and an artificial turf surface. The lower field would get a new scoreboard and covered spectator seating area along with concession upgrades. Improvements for the field at Houtling Elementary School include construction of an accessible route throughout the field, including the construction of a parking area north of the field and the installation of a sidewalk along the north perimeter. 
If the Assembly votes to introduce the bond ordinance on Monday, it would come back for a public hearing on August 16th. If approved in second reading, the bond would come back before voters at the October 5th municipal election. In other business, the Assembly is scheduled to hold a work session to discuss the borough's compensation study. Arthur J. Gallagher & Co. was contracted to conduct the study back in 2019. It was presented to the Assembly in January of last year, but further action was not taken because of the pandemic. Ketchikan's Borough Assembly meets at 5.30 p.m. Monday in the Assembly Chambers in the Whitecliffe Building. The meeting will be televised on the KPU's local channel, but because of equipment problems, it will not be live-streamed on the Borough's website. Video will be uploaded to the Borough website after the meeting. Public comment will be heard at the beginning of the meeting. Plans to double the size of Ketchikan's airport terminal over the next two decades are nearly complete. Officials hope to start design work on the $89 million terminal expansion next year. Ketchikan International Airport's current terminal needs a facelift, airport consultants told the local borough assembly. Take the airport's one-lane security checkpoint. When lots of people are flying, the security line can stretch down two flights of stairs. Consultant Tim Dacey says that's a problem for families with small children, people in wheelchairs, and others who have trouble on the stairs. So we're going to propose uh, to put that on the first floor. Um, that also allows, if there is a surge, um, that surge is, there's, there's ways to accommodate that with a bigger, more generous footprint rather than having it go down the stairs. He works with Mead & Hunt, that's a Wisconsin-based airport planning firm retained by the borough to plan the future of Ketchikan International Airport. He says Ketchikan's current terminal just isn't equipped to handle a growing number of passengers. The initial study started pre-COVID. Uh, at that time, we were looking at uh, 250,000 passengers in 2019 um, and, and looking for a, a terminal that can support up to 360,000 passengers in 2038. The plan would at least double the terminal's square footage, but Dacey says it's not just about adding more space. Better configured space is, is really critical. There is a a lack of efficiency right now that I think exacerbates the problem, a lot of cross-connections uh, that we're going to see. Dacey says the current flow of foot traffic at the airport is not intuitive, with arriving and departing passengers overlapping in many locations. Major airlines also share lobby space with smaller charters. So here's the plan. The security checkpoint would move downstairs and a new lane would be added. Small plane travelers would get their own departure lounge. Concessions areas would be expanded. A new covered jetway would be added. And the commercial apron, where planes park, would be partially resurfaced with smoother concrete instead of asphalt. That's just the first phase of the plan, which comes with an expected price tag of roughly $23 million. Nearly $8 million would come from federal airport funds. The local match would be another $7.1 million from the borough's airport cash reserves. Consultants recommended borrowing the remaining $8 million by selling bonds that would be paid back with the fees charged to operators and passengers using the airport. Design work for the terminal expansion would start next year with construction spanning 2023 and 2024. Later phases, which would continue through 2040, would expand the baggage claim, add more parking, further expand the terminal, finish repaving the apron, and reconfigure an access road. How exactly that part would be financed is still an open question. The borough's finance director says the next step is renewing the borough's lease agreement with the state for the airport. She says it will expire in 2027, but negotiations with the state are already happening. To stay on target, finance officials say they hope an agreement will be reached in the next few months and brought to the assembly for approval. Additional reporting on that story from KRBD's Maria Dudzak.
That's it for tonight's KRBD Evening Report. Thanks so much for listening. You can get the show as a podcast on your favorite podcast app. The Evening Report will be back Monday with host Maria Dudzak. I'm Eric Stone.